This Parsha podcast is sponsored by the Gortz family from New Jersey, who were kind enough to email me and tell me how much their whole family enjoys listening to the Parsha podcasts. May their supportive torch and sponsorship of this week's Parsha podcast be a merit for their family. Parsha's bow has 105 verses, and there's going to be a marked shift in the nature of the Parshas going forward. Until now, we've only had three mitzvos in total in the book of Genesis. Starting from this week's Parsha, the mitzvos will begin in earnest. This week we have 20 mitzvos, and there's going to be very few Torah sections from here on out that don't have any mitzvos, just narrative and dialogue. And, of course, the story of the Parsha is the continuation of the 10 plagues narrative from last week, and the beginnings of the actual exodus from the land of Egypt. The Jewish people have been there for 210 years, and they are going to be saved, and that is going to culminate with the death of the firstborn in this week's Parsha. And I think an important subplot in the Parsha is Pharaoh's intransigence. We're already seven plagues in, And Pharaoh is pushing the limits of how much someone can resist the messages of the Almighty. In the end of last week's parasha, Moshe comes and he takes soot and he throws it up in front of Pharaoh and it turns into boils all over the land of Egypt. These are undeniable miracles and Pharaoh is unmoved. And in fact, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened initially because he himself is unmoved. But even when the Almighty steps in and intervenes and hardens Pharaoh's heart, that's only because the miracles that he saw were so unprecedented. Last week we had the hail that was never seen before. This week we're going to read about the locust that swarmed into Egypt that was never seen before. Darkness for seven days. The people were frozen in place. These are undeniable miracles. And I think it's clear that had it been a swarm of locusts that was precedented, Even though it was choreographed and telegraphed by Moses, Pharaoh would not have been moved even though he was forewarned ahead of time and his heart needed to be hardened. And that's really the theme that we start the Parsha with. The Almighty tells Moshe, go to Pharaoh, for I have made his heart and the heart of his servants stubborn. They have a hard hard heart. Their free will is going to be suspended so that I can make these signs of mine in his midst. And so that you may relate in the ears of your son and your son's son that I made a mockery of Egypt and my signs that I placed among them so that you may know that I am Hashem. Here we're told two reasons why the Almighty is going to intervene and harden Pharaoh's heart. A, to facilitate these signs, and B, to make a mockery of Egypt. But ultimately, the the, the net result of that all is that the Jewish people will know that I am Hashem. Like we said in last week's Parsha, the goal of these 10 miracles, these 10 plagues, and even the splitting of the sea that we're going to read about next week, this is to build up the repertoire of faith, of the Jewish people. They're going to see the Almighty's dominance over every part of nature. Every part of the world is controlled by Him, and that is going to create the foundation upon which we can have Torah and we can have the eternal relationship with the Almighty. Previously, the Jewish people were subject to Pharaoh. He was their master. He was their overlord. For some, he was their deity. And now the Almighty is going to make a mockery of him, It's going to be funny almost. It's going to be jocular how Pharaoh is going to be derided by God. And as a result, consequently, the Jewish people will realize that he's nothing but a pawn in the hands of the Almighty and they will transfer their allegiances to him. Pharaoh was someone who purported to be someone who had control. He considered himself a deity. And here God is going to be mocking him. God is going to be deriding him. It's going to be kind of funny. It's humorous to think that this person is going to stand up before God. There's an old Yiddish saying, Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. People think, people scheme, people try to do things, and ultimately the Almighty laughs, so to speak. He has all 
the control. We humans are here today, gone tomorrow. Pharaoh, here today, gone tomorrow. All the power that we have, all the power that he has, all the power that any kings have are all given to them by God. And when they try to flaunt their power in front of the Almighty, it's kind of funny and humorous that they think that they could really one-up the Almighty. One of the commentators points out that it's actually ironic as well. Pharaoh was the one who made the decree to kill all the firstborns of the Jews and thereby forestall the salvation of the Jews. He'll kill the Jewish savior. And what happened? His own daughter saved Moses, saved Moshe. And where did Moshe grow up? He raised him in his own house. In retrospect, Pharaoh wanted to stop the Jewish people, wanted to stop Moses, and he was the one who actually raised him in his own house. In addition, we see the first of many instances of this week's Parsha where the miracles and the plagues of Egypt are important for us to relate to our children. This is the foundations of our religion, and we are going to perpetuate that from generation to generation to keep the flame lit, the flame of faith that began with the Exodus. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and they said to him, So said Hashem, God of the Hebrews, until when will you refuse to be humbled before me? Pharaoh's intransigence was manifested by the fact that he refused to be humbled before God. Let the people go. If you continue to refuse to send them, the Almighty is going to bring a locust swarm in your border. It's going to cover the surface of the earth. You could actually watch videos on uh, online of swarm of locusts, and they, they, they come in such tremendous numbers that it, it can actually black out the sky, black out the sun. This is going to be, say Moshe and Aaron, this is going to be a tremendous swarm, one never seen before in the history of Egypt, one never seen since. It's going to consume all the food that there was left over from the from the previous plague of hail. Hail, of course, destroyed a lot of the produce and the vegetables and the grain, and whatever's left over is going to be consumed by this swarm of locusts. In effect, Moses and Aaron are telling Pharaoh that unless you send the Jewish people now, the entire grain, the entire food of your nation will be destroyed. They give over the message and they leave. And Pharaoh's servants, they say to him, how long could you possibly allow this to continue? These people have an impeccable track record. Everything that they say indeed happens. Don't you know that our whole country is going to be destroyed? So they are summoned back. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go, but who do you intend to take with you? And Moses responds, well, we plan on taking everyone, young people, old people, men, women, sons, our sons, our daughters, all our flock, all our cattle, all our possessions. It's a huge festival that we want to have in the wilderness. And Pharaoh responds, I'll let the men go, but it's ridiculous. I'm not going to let you, all of you leave. I want to keep your children as collateral. Of course, you are claiming that you want to have a three-day festival, but I'm worried once I let you go, you'll never come back. And if you take your children and all your possessions and all your livestock, everyone with you, I don't have any collateral, and therefore I'm not going to let you do it. And he adds, look, the ra'ah, the evil intent is opposite your faces. According to one interpretation of what this means in Rashi, Pharaoh is telling them that I know that you have some sinister plans of just leaving and therefore I can't send you with everything. I have to keep something behind. But Rashi also adds a second interpretation of what Pharaoh is saying. He's saying that there is some sort of astrological sign called ra'ah, and this is a reference to blood and bloodshed. And I see if you plan on escaping this sign, this force, this spiritual constellation is going to kill you. So in essence, it's a threat of his own. If you leave, all of you will die. And Rashi tells us something very interesting. Several months after the Exodus, the Jewish people commit the crime, the sin of the golden calf, and the Almighty wants to destroy them. And Moses, in his prayer, in his intervention, he tells the Almighty that, well, what happens if you indeed kill the Jewish people? Then Pharaoh will be vindicated. Pharaoh and his threat that if we leave, we'll all die, will come true. And the Almighty said, you know what? You're right. 
And therefore, he altered the blood, not from being blood of the, the destruction of the Jewish people, rather to be a reference to the blood of circumcision that they did. And I think it's interesting. This is the second time that Pharaoh is misinterpreting the astro- the astrological signs of his necromancers and gurus. Before Moses was born, they told him that the Jewish savior will be hamstrung by water. Pharaoh's solution to that was throw all the newborn babies into the water and nip it in the bud. Here we see that he was really right. There was some sort of force. There was some sort of destiny, some pre-existing future that seemingly was set in stone that the Jewish people are going to have to face this blood in the desert. And here we see that he was really right. But Moses' prayer saved them and converted the blood from being blood of destruction into blood of a mitzvah. And I think this dovetails with a teaching in the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 156a. The Talmud says that certain people have a proclivity, some pre-existing destiny to be a bloodshedder. That much is fixed. That much is, so to speak, determined by their luck or by their mazel, as it is in Hebrew. However, what is not determined is how that will play out. Someone could be a bloodshedder and they could be a surgeon which is a good thing. They could be helping people. Someone could be a mohel, could be doing mitzvos, a ritual circumciser. Someone could be a butcher, which is neither here nor there. It's neutral. And of course, someone could be a murderer. All four of those occupations are all manifestations of bloodshed, but it ranges from being a tremendous mitzvah to being the worst sin. And that is why the Talmud tells us that we don't really, the Jewish people are not subject to mazel, We cannot be pigeonholed into some sort of destiny because we have the intervention of prayer, just like Moses. Moses was able to intervene and alter the destiny of the Jewish people. Pharaoh indeed saw something, but what he saw was not something that guaranteed a future for the Jewish people. So again, Moses and Aaron are driven away from Pharaoh's presence and Indeed, the plague of locust is upon us. The Almighty tells Moses, stretch your hand of the land of Egypt, and he stretched his hand out, and a eastern wind swept through town, and it brought with it a tremendous locust swarm. It ascended over the entire land of Egypt. It covered the entirety of the border of Egypt. There was never beforehand unprecedented locust, and it consumed all the grass, all the fruits, all the vegetation, all the grain. There was no greenery that remained in the trees, nor the grass. Everything was consumed by the locusts. Pharaoh freaks out again. He hastens and summons Moses. I've sinned against God. Stop this from happening. Pray to the Almighty to remove this terrible death of the locust. And and Moses, indeed, Obliged, he prays, and a reverse wind happens, a very powerful west wind, and it carries the locust swarm and hurls it into the sea. And the verse concludes, this is verse 19, not a single locust remained within the entire border of Egypt. Moses' prayer was successful completely. Rashi tells us that there wasn't a single locust That means that even the ones that were salted for future consumption were also taken away. And my grandfather used to say that what this is telling us is that when the Almighty does something, there are no half measures. With absolute resounding completion, the Almighty does his deeds. Moses prays to remove the locust. Some Egyptian stockpiled a few, grabbed a few, and says, hey, you know what, I'm going to eat these. As an aside, um, there are some species of locusts that are indeed kosher. Uh, in some societies, even today, locusts are a delicacy, or at least a food that people eat. So some Egyptian grabbed a whole bunch in a bag, and he says, okay, when this disaster is removed, at least I'll have dinner. And even that was swept away. Moses prayed to remove the locust, and the locusts remo- were removed by God, each and every one of them. But of course, Pharaoh's heart was strengthened 
by God, and he did not send the Jewish people out of the land. And then we move on to the ninth plague. And like the pattern that we've sought, we've seen previously, the first two, Moses warns Pharaoh, and the third one happens without warning, the ninth one as well. So the third, the sixth, and the ninth happen without warning. The Almighty tells Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heavens, and there shall be darkness upon the land of Egypt, and the darkness will be tangible. This will not be simple darkness. This will be darkness that will freeze the people in place. So Moses stretched forth his hands towards the heaven. There was a thick darkness that descended upon the land of Egypt for a three-day period. So for three days, the people couldn't see each other. And then for the last three-day period, they couldn't even move from their place. That was for the Egyptians, but for all the children of Israel, there was light in their dwelling. Rashi tells us, why did this ninth plague, why why did it happen? Why was there a plague of darkness? Rashi tells us two answers. Number one, because at that time, there were people in the generation, there were Jews who were wicked and didn't want to leave. They were more comfortable in Egypt, even though it was a pretty terrible place to live. That was where they were used to living, and they were absolutely adamantly opposed for leaving. And the Almighty says, okay, the Jewish people are leaving with or without these people, and these people actually died during the three days of intense, tangible darkness in Egypt. Why? Because what were to happen if the Egyptians were to see the Jews dying? Well, they'll say, hey, this is not a, this is not a plague against us. They too, the Jewish people are also being stricken like us. And therefore, to prevent the Egyptians from seeing the downfall of the wicked Jews, the Almighty made it dark and those people died and they were buried and no one knew the better. And I think this is interesting that some people, they, they are in a state of stasis. They, they have stagnation. No matter how bad things get, some people are subject to paralysis. They're not willing to improve their situation. They are comfortable. They're complacent in whatever situation they're in. And no matter how good, how green the grass is on the other side, they're not willing to move. We know throughout our history, there's been times where the Jewish people were forced to move. And sometimes people are given a choice to live as Jews, to flourish as Jews elsewhere, or to stay where you're comfortable. Of course, there's no time in history where that was more present than during the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal in the end of the 15th century. And of course, we know there were many Jews that remained there and didn't want to abandon the life and their comfort, and they became, some of them converted, some of them tried to maintain their Judaism clandestinely, but sadly, those people, most of them were lost to their nation. Uh, This was the state of the Jews, some of the Jews, in the land of Egypt. Yes, it was tough. Yes, they were enslaved, but they were not willing to leave because they were comfortable and they weren't willing to go to the unknown. And therefore, the Almighty said, these people cannot be at the founding of the nascent nation of the Jewish people, and therefore they died, and they were they died and were buried during the darkness. That's the first reason why there was the plague of darkness. The second reason Rashi tells us is because when the Jewish people are going to be leaving, they're going to be borrowing all kinds of jewelry and valuables from their Egyptian neighbors. And of course, this borrowing is going to turn into, uh, they're going to keep it. And they're going to keep it as restitution for the hundreds of years of servitude, of forced servitude that the Jews were subject to. But what's going to be? The Jews are going to come to their Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, can I borrow some gold vessels? Can I borrow some silver? Can I borrow some nice clothing for our festival? And the Egyptians are going to say, I actually don't have anything valuable or I don't have anything valuable right now. The Jew who spent three days rummaging through the possessions and the stuff of their Egyptian neighbors will say, well, actually, in your closet, in this drawer... I think you have a pile of gold, or I think you have this nice fancy gold vessel. And the Egyptians will have to admit that indeed they are the owners of valuables and they'll have to relinquish them to the Jews. 
So during those three days, the Jews scoured the goods of their neighbors to determine their exact location. And a few days later, they're going to be borrowing it. And I think this is another illustration of the lesson that the Jewish people are told and the lesson that we're trying to perpetuate. And when we study this, we're trying to remember and entrench in our hearts the entire nation of Egypt, all the Egyptians, it's dark. It's so dark. They can't see for three days. It gets even darker. They can't move. They're frozen in place. And what happens to the Jews? All the Jews, their light is unaffected. They see perfectly. And you have two neighbors, the Jew and his Egyptian neighbor, and they're living in two different universes. For the Egyptian, he's frozen in place. He can't move. He's stuck in whatever position he was at the beginning of that three-day period. And the Jew, it's as if nothing's changed. And this is an important lesson that we each live, so to speak, in our own world. It's an idea that we say is called hashtaha pratit, individual providence. Each person is treated uniquely. The Talmud tells us that every person is obligated to say, this is an astonishing statement, every person is obligated to say, the world was created for me. This sounds like a very arrogant statement. The whole world was created for me. But the Talmud says that. You're supposed to say that. You have to say that. Why? Because, well, Adam, he was the only human, and the whole world was created for him, meaning that the entirety of the world, all that, whatever meaning the Almighty wanted to extract from the world was all for one human. And therefore, me, just a regular person, the whole world was created for me. And here we see this idea that every person really lives in their own world, Of course, all our worlds are coinciding in this same world, but it's important for us to realize that I have a direct connection with the Almighty, and the Almighty cares about what's happening to me. And really, my relationship between me and the Almighty should be the same as if I was Adam, and it was just me in the world. And here, the Jewish people, they realize that every single Jew, they themselves are are hand-selected, so to speak, by the Almighty to not be subject to this plague, whereas every Egyptian is subject to the plague. A very timeless lesson that we see in this ninth plague. And again, Pharaoh summons Moses and says to him, go, serve God, and I'll even let your children go. But I want to maintain the flock and the cattle. Let me have a little bit of collateral to know that you're coming back. It's interesting here, Pharaoh, he doesn't get it. He refuses to acknowledge the fact that he lost all his leverage. And Moses says to him, you don't get it. Even you will place in our hands feast offerings and elevation offerings, and we shall offer them to Hashem our God. You, 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 you don't get it. Not only are you going to allow us to take the stuff that we already own, You're going to give us stuff of your own. You're going to be so eager to send us packing. You're not only going to not hold stuff back, you're going to add more possessions to our coffers and to send us with gifts of your own. We're going to take everything. Everything we're going to take with us on our journey, even our livestock, not a hoof will left behind. And again, Moshe maintains the understanding that we're going just for a pilgrimage. We don't know what the Almighty is going to want, what kind of sacrifices we're going to offer once we leave, and therefore we have to take everything with us. And again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God. He is not willing to send them. And Pharaoh says to him with finality, go from me, leave, beware. Do not see my face anymore, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh makes a threat. I'm done with you. You come back here to the palace, I'm going to kill you. And Moses responds, indeed, you have spoken correctly. I shall never see your face again. This relationship apparently is over. And we're going to find out later in the Parsha that indeed they will meet again. And Moses is still telling the truth in verse 29 when he tells Pharaoh, we're not going to see each other again. And there's two answers that I've seen to that question. That Moses says, yeah, we're not going to see each other again, not in the palace, but in the future, you're going to come to me. I'm not going to be coming to you anymore. Alternatively, when Mo- when Pharaoh meets Moses again, it's via a servant. And before 
Moses leaves, he shares with Pharaoh one more message that was conveyed to him right there and then by the Almighty. So right before Moses leaves, he has a prophecy. And this is one of the, uh, this is unique because this prophecy is conveyed to Moses in the land of Egypt. Previously, Moses had to leave the land. The land was full of idols. It wasn't an appropriate place for prophecy. But here, the Almighty tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh, there's one more plague that's going to happen to him and to his country. And then you're going to send us packing. And the Almighty also tells Moses in that prophecy to go tell the Jewish people, Please speak in the ears of the people. Mo- the Almighty pleased to, Mo- to Moses to plead to the people, let each man request of his fellow and each woman from her fellow silver vessels and gold, gold vessels. It's important for us to exploit Egypt to take away their wealth with us. And the Almighty promises that the people are going to find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. People are going to forfeit their stuff, their valuables to the Jewish people. Now, Rashi points out that the Almighty pleads with Moses to make sure that the Jewish people request silver vessels and gold vessels from their Egyptian comrades. Why does he have to plea? After all, it's something that's desirous. You don't need to ask me, would you please take my gold vessel? Of course, the Jewish people are invested. They would like to have the gold vessels. Why does the Almighty make that plea? So Rashi tells us that... In chapter 15 of Genesis, during the covenant between the parts, the Almighty tells Abraham that the Jewish people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and afterwards when they leave, they'll leave with great wealth. And I'm worried, says the Almighty, that Abraham is going to come to me with a protest. He says, hey, the first part of the promise, the first part of the prophecy, you fulfilled. The Jewish people were enslaved for 400 years. But when you said that when they leave, they're going to leave the great wealth, that you did not fulfill. And therefore, the mighty pleased to Moses, go make sure the Jewish people get that wealth too. Now, I think the question still stands, why does the mighty need to make that plea? And uh, some of the commentaries answer is that the Jewish people were so desperate to leave, or at least the ones, the people that wanted to leave, were so desperate to leave that they were not willing to do anything. Just get me out of here. If I have some person who's in prison, maximum security prison, and I say, okay, we'll go to freedom. But first, let's stop off in the warden's office and take all those gold. No, no, no. I don't want to stop off anywhere. I want to just leave. I don't want anything. Let me just get me out of here. That would that would have been the attitude of the Jewish people had they had their options before them. And therefore, the Almighty is please make sure, insist upon this, that the Jewish people go ask their friends for gold and silver. And it is interesting, some of the commentaries point out, that here, the Jewish people are characterized as friends of their Egyptian neighbors. And we know that the, that the Egyptians enslaved the Jews and the Egyptians marginalized the Jews and treated them terribly. How could they be considered as quote-unquote friendly? So one of the commentators says something very astonishing. They became friendly over the course of the Ten Plagues. And specifically during the ninth plague, the most recent plague, the plague of darkness, the Egyptians, they were frozen in place for three days. How is it possible? How did they survive? How did they go three days without eating and drinking? So the Nitziv, one of the commentators in the Torah, he gives the answer that their Jewish neighbors would come visit them maybe at the same time that they were looking through their valuables, and they would visit them, and they would give them food, and they would give them a drink. And as a result, the Egyptians felt indebted to the Jewish neighbors. They were friends, and they were willing to part with their valuables when the Jewish people came knocking on their door. So that's the content of the Almighty's prophecy to Moses. And Moses, while he's still standing there with Pharaoh, conveys this message to Pharaoh, the nature of the final upcoming miraculous plague. Moses said, So said Hashem, at about midnight, I shall go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn of land shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh, from the prince who's on the throne to the firstborn of the maidservant, to the firstborn of the animal. It's going to be a total 
decimation of of all the firstborn in Egypt. There's going to be a terrible outcry in the entire land, such as there has never been before, and there shall never be again. A tremendous cry, unprecedented in the annals of Egyptian history. But against the children of Israel, no dog shall wet its tongue. No dog is going to be barking, neither against neither man nor beast. And you shall know that Hashem will have differentiated between Egypt and Israel. And then, continues Moses, all your servants will come down and bow to me and insist, leave you and the entire people that follow follows only then will I leave. And thus Moses concludes his message and he leaves Pharaoh's presence and he stomps out of there. So there's a few things here to point out. First of all, Moses tells Pharaoh that at about midnight, the death of the firstborn is going to happen. Rashi points out that when it actually does happen in a few chapters, it's not at about midnight, it's precisely at midnight. Why And why when Moses conveys the nature of the plague of the death of the firstborn, does he say at about midnight? Rashi tells us, because it's possible that the watches of Egypt would be slightly off, a few minutes early, a few minutes late. It's not an atomic clock. And therefore, what's going to be? Moses is going to say, at midnight, everyone's going to die. And what's going to be on the clock of the Egyptians at 11.58 or at 12.01, not exactly midnight, everyone dies. And then they're going to say, hey, Moses, he's a fraud. He said at midnight, and it was two minutes early, it was four minutes late. It's going to be inaccurate in their minds because their clocks are wrong. And therefore, Moses says at around midnight, the death of the firstborn is going to happen, not to allow the Egyptians to claim that he misspoke. I think this is another amazing example of the degree of delusion and denial that Pharaoh was subject to. Let's say Moses did indeed say at midnight, Pharaoh say, eh? the fact that it happened a minute or two earlier or later, that disproves the entirety of his message and he won't be moved at all. And again, this shows us that Pharaoh's heart was pretty hard already. He was pretty much not impacted anyhow. And therefore, Moses has to work around that and say, well, at around midnight, and that way, the message will have some efficacy. And that's going to happen with the Egyptians, all the Egyptians, all the firstborn, doesn't matter of their caste, doesn't matter of what level of aristocracy, they're all going to die, the animals are going to die. But conversely, amongst the Jewish people, it's going to be total peace, serenity, and tranquility, even the dogs will cease to bark. And this little tidbit is somewhat unusual. The dogs are going to cease to bark. What does that mean? So the Arizal, the famed Kabbalist, uh, quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that the dogs bark when the angel of death is in town. Amongst the Jewish people, the angel of death is not going to be in town that night, and therefore the dogs are not going to bark because no one is going to die that night. My grandfather of blessed memory said a very deep insight. And he said that according to Jewish philosophy, the most spiritual of the senses is the sense of smell. That is the most intangible. And that is the most linked to the soul. And that's why by Havdalah, we smell the Basamim. Why? Because we're going to, because after Shabbos is over, we want to appease the soul. The soul is so happy in Shabbos. It's so sad and despondent after Shabbos. And we appease it by smelling the spices at Havdalah. There's no animal, continues my grandfather, that has as developed a sense of smell as the dog. And therefore, the dog, says the Talmud, is the most chutzpah, is the most gumption of all the animals. When the dog is barking at a person, in effect, according to the Kabbalists, what it's telling us is, it's trying to lord over the human by saying, I am more spiritual than you. I have a better 
sense of smell than you, and therefore are more spiritually attuned and connected than you are. What's going to be during the night of the Exodus, during the night of the death of the firstborn? There's going to be such a revelation in the land of Egypt, a revelation that's going to affect the entire world forever, a revelation that is going to infuse faith into the hearts of the Jewish people for all of eternity. The dogs are going to stop barking. It's going to be clear to everyone, and even to the dogs, the spiritual superiority of the Jewish people. So Moses has concluded his message, and the Almighty tells him, Pharaoh will not heed you, even though Moses made the most scary threat yet. Pharaoh's not going to listen in order to facilitate the miracles in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron performed all these miracles before Hashem, but Hashem strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not send the children of Israel out of his land. Thus concludes chapter 11. This final verse seems seems to be like it's wrapping up the whole story. Moses and Aaron, they did all the wonders, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he sent the Jewish people out. The Ramban shares an interesting note. He says, Moses and Aaron had very important roles that they fulfilled, but their work is done. Once they conveyed the message to Pharaoh of the impending plague of the death of the firstborn, their job is over. From now on, from the death of the firstborn onwards, Moses and Aaron, they have no part in it. That's the work of the Almighty. That's the work of God. And therefore, we're concluding their narrative, so to speak, by saying Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. And now we're moving on to a different chapter, actually quite literally, because chapter 12 begins. And this is a pivotal watershed in the Torah, because now is when the torrent of mitzvos begins. And the first mitzvah that we're told, this is the first mitzvah of the book of Exodus, and the first mitzvah conveyed to the entirety of the Jewish people as a nation, not to the individuals, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. The Almighty tells Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be for you the first of the months of the year. The first mitzvah that we're told here is that the Jewish people have to maintain a calendar. We have to keep track of when the month begins, when the month ends, and we also have to know that the first month is the month of Nisan, the month in which the Exodus happened. It is somewhat confusing because Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish year, is in Tishrei, which is about a half a year separated from Pesach and the Exodus. But the answer to that is, is that there is the calendar cycle, and that begins the first month of the calendar begins in Nisan, and then there's the yearly, the annual cycle, which begins on Rosh Hashanah in Tishrei. And I think it is noteworthy that this is the first mitzvah. Uh, Just as an aside, I did do an entire podcast on my other podcast channel, the Jewish History Podcast, on the history of the Jewish calendar, where I talked about the Jewish calendar in great detail. Maybe check that out if you want to hear more about this. But it is interesting that This is a very complicated thing. We have a lunar month and a solar year. And the Talmud tells us, the Talmud is a document that's uh, thousands of years old. It actually tells us the exact length of a lunar moon down to the second. And these are literally astronomical calculations that have withstood the test of time. And I think it is noteworthy that the first mitzvah that we're told here is to maintain and manage a calendar, and maybe no other mitzvah can we see as clearly the wisdom of Torah and the veracity of the tradition and the prophecy as in this one, which is something that you kind of wonder how did people thousands of years know, thousands of years ago know the exact length of the lunar month and all the tremendous calculations needed to actually organize and sustain and perpetuate a calendar, how did they do that if they did not have divine assistance? So what needs to happen on this month? So this is exactly two weeks before the actual exodus, and the Almighty tells Moses to go speak to the entire assembly of Israel, 
On the tenth of this month, so ten days from now, they shall take for themselves, they should separate for themselves an animal, a sheep, a lamb, or a goat. And this is going to be the Pesach offering. And the commentators point out that specifically they're told to take a sheep because that was an animal that was deified by the Egyptians. And like we've mentioned in the past, the Jews, many of them had descended spiritually. Some of them even were even idolaters. And they had to take this animal and keep it for several days in their home and then slaughter it. And in effect, that is the culmination of this entire, what ends up being a year-long process of extracting the Jews from the Egyptians and culminating with the total severing of their allegiances to the Egyptians and their Egyptian deities by slaughtering this animal the day before they leave. And this, of course, is a mitzvah that continued on for generations and a mitzvah that is going to be restored once the third temple is rebuilt, that the day before Pesach, all of the Jewish people, we have what's called the Paschal Offering. This is something which is symbolized in the Afikomen Matzah of the Seder that we do today. We can't do it unless there's a temple. You take a small animal, a lamb or a goat or a sheep, it's within his first year of life, and you slaughter and prepare it the day before Pesach, which is the 14th day of the month of Nisan, and then you eat it on that night, the night of the Exodus. And it's important to note that there is voluminous literature on this particular mitzvah, the mitzvah of the Pesach offering, and also specifically for our purposes, the differences between the Pesach offering that happened during this time, during this, the first one, the one that was done in Egypt, and the rest of them that are done for, uh, for generations, for thousands of years throughout our history. One of those differences is in verse 6 we read, It shall be yours for examination until the 14th day of the month. The entire generation of the assembly of Israel shall slaughter it in the afternoon. So you take it on the 10th day of the month, and then you watch it. You make sure it doesn't get any blemishes for four days. In fact, we're told in the Midrash that you take it and you tie it to your bed. And you spend four days with this animal to make sure it doesn't get any blemishes. And then only after four days of watching it and assuring that it is unblemished, you slaughter it on the 14th day in the afternoon. The rest of the Pesachs throughout our history, you don't need to do that. You could just buy it on the morning of and slaughter it in the afternoon. Why specifically are we told in Egypt to guard it for four days and then slaughter it. So Rashi tells us that the Jewish people were devoid of any mitzvot. They were naked, so to speak, spiritually. And therefore, in order to facilitate the tremendous miracles of that night, of the night of the 15th, the night following the slaughtering of the Paschal offering, in order to facilitate that, there has to be a certain spiritual merit and therefore, they might give them some mitzvos to be able to pack them up spiritually, to prime them spiritually for the tremendous night and revelation of the Exodus. In addition, the Almighty tells them to take some of that blood, to dip it in a special potion, and put it on the doorposts of their house, and to eat it on that night, you eat it roasted, you eat it with matzah, you eat it with maru, with the bitter herbs, you don't cook it, uh, it's on the fire, it's roasted, you don't leave any more of it left over that night. Later on, we learn some more laws, you can't crack a bone, whatever's left over, you have to burn in the fire, you can't take it out of the house, and you're eating it fully dressed, ready to go to leave, we're about to leave in haste out of the land of Egypt. Continues the Almighty, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt in this night. I'm going to strike down every firstborn land of Egypt from man to beast and against all the gods of Egypt. I shall mete out punishment. We know that the, the Egyptians deified firstborns as well. 
and I'm going to prove that I am Hashem. I am the only power, and the blood that you're going to put on your doorposts will show me, so to speak, not that I need it, but to show me that you're invested in doing what's right, and I'm going to jump over your house, your neighbor, the Egyptian, I'm going to strike him down, but if you put the blood on the doorpost, I'm going to jump over, I'm going to pass over your house, and no destruction is going to happen to you. Continues the Almighty, tell the Jewish people that this is not just a one-time event, this is going to be throughout the generations, an eternal decree you should celebrate for seven days, of course this is the holiday of Passover, of Pesach, for seven day period you shall eat matzos, on the previous day you get rid of all the leaven, all the leavened bread, all the chametz, you don't eat the leavened bread on Pesach, and if you do that, then your soul is going to be cut off from Israel. Now, this is the first time that we read about something like that, this idea that if someone does something or if someone refrains from doing something, then their soul is going to be cut off from the assembly of Israel. We read if someone eats leavened bread during Pesach or if someone refrains from doing the pastoral offering before Pesach and on the eve of Pesach, then they get caught off from the Jewish people. And the idea behind that is that the spiritual world and the physical world are mirror images of each other. And just like in this physical world, if you don't eat, if you don't drink, if you don't sleep, you cannot have continuity and perpetuity. You can't live. Similarly, to live spiritually, there are certain preconditions. There are certain necessities that must be fulfilled. And here we're told that if someone eats chametz on Pesach, they are cutting themselves off spiritually. It's as if they have starved themselves and their soul is going to wither away. There's a certain kind of Maslow's hierarchy of what your soul needs, and if you deprive it from what it needs, it is going to cease flourishing, and you're going to be cut off from your people. So Moses gathers the elders of Israel and conveys the message to them. He tells them to go take one of their flock and slaughter the Pesach offering, and gives them the instructions of putting the blood uh, on their doorposts. And then he tells them, verse 23, Hashem will pass through to smite Egypt and he will see the blood that it is that is on the doorposts and the Almighty will pass over the entrance and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses to smite. It is interesting that in the Haggadah, we make a, a big deal about the fact that it wasn't some angel the Almighty sent to destroy the firstborn of Egypt. It was the Almighty himself. And here it seems from the verse, uh, verse 23, that the Almighty does not permit the destroyer, which is a reference to some spiritual force, to enter their house. So which one is it? Is it the Almighty who's killing all the firstborners, or is it this angel, this destroyer, that could enter the house to smite? So Rashi gives one answer, uh, but a second answer is that the destroyer is an unrelated to the events of the night. Uh, it's a reference to the angel of death, meaning that there's not going to be any Jews who are going to die at all, not from heart attacks or from strokes or from any other reason. The angel of death is going to be suspended for that night if the Jewish people put the door on the doorposts, even the destroyers, even other forces that could be potentially harmful are not going to be present that night. And Moses continues and tells the Jewish people uh, via the elders that this process or parts of this process are going to be done year after year once we enter the land of Israel that we're going to do the Pesach offering uh, every year. And the children of Israel went and did as Hashem commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they do. The people heard the message and they fulfilled it. And Rashi picks up on a little bit of a nuance here. Uh, in verse 28, the children of Israel went and did as Hashem commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they do. Those last few words seem to be redundant. And Rashi tells us that that's a reference not to the Jewish people, but also Moses and Aaron. It wasn't just Moses and Aaron leaders instructing the people to obey their command, but they themselves did it as well. And this is maybe the barometer of a true Jewish leader, not someone who says, do as I say, not as I do, but rather someone who tells his people, do as I do. They themselves are an exemplar of the ideals that they preach. 
And verse 29, we read about the actual events of the death of the firstborn. It was at midnight that the Almighty smote every firstborn land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn animal. Exactly at midnight, exactly as the Almighty had told Moses would happen, and Moses conveyed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh rose up at midnight. Rashi tells us that Pharaoh was sleeping even though Moses had been entirely accurate in every single one of his predictions, Pharaoh was calm enough to go to sleep. He and all servants and all of Egypt, and there was a great outcry in Egypt. There was, no, there was no house that there was no corpse. If there was a firstborn, there was a corpse. If there was no firstborn, the next one up died. There was death everywhere. He called to Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up. Go out from among my people, even you, even the children of Israel, go and serve Hashem as you have spoken. Take everything with you. Take the sheep, take your cattle, exactly as you have spoken. Just leave and go. Rashi tells us that Pharaoh was running around frantically, searching for Moses and for Aaron. Our children have a song. Pharaoh was in pajamas, running around. And this is indeed part of the joke from the beginning of the parsha. It's kind of hilarious to look at that monarch at that autocrat, at that king who told his nation that he is infallible, that he is a deity, he doesn't need to go to the bathroom, he's running around like a lunatic trying to find where Moses and Aaron are living just so he could evict them from his land. Egypt imposed itself strongly upon the people to hasten them to leave out of the land. They were worried that they were all going to die. The people, the Jewish people that is, picked up its dough before it could become leavened. Their leftovers bound up in their garments, in their garments upon their shoulders. The people were in the middle of making bread for their trip. And the dough was about to become leavened, but they had to pick it up and leave and run away because the Egyptians were forcing them to leave so fast. It's interesting. The Talmud tells us that there was that there is a dispute regarding the prohibition of eating leavened bread for the seven days of the actual Exodus. According to one opinion, they were only prohibited eating hummus the day of the Exodus, even though for the rest of the time, every year Pesach, we have a seven-day prohibition. That time in Egypt was only for one day, and then they were planning to bake bread to take it with them, but they were in such a rush, they had to take the bread in the dough format. And according to the other opinion of the Talmud, that they were prohibited to eat hummus for seven days, they were planning on baking matzah, on baking, on baking unleavened bread, and they had to take it with them in a dough form because they were being hastened out of the land of Egypt. And they take with them as per the instruction of Moses, they go to their neighbors quickly and borrow the silver vessels and the gold vessels and the garments. And the people, the Egyptians, are so eager to get rid of the Jews, they granted their request and the Jewish people start leaving and they have emptied out all of Egypt. The children of Israel journey from Ramses to Sukkot. I mean, again, they're traveling the entire nation with all their possessions, with tons of possessions that were added to them for the Egyptians, with the dough that is not yet cooked, about 600,000 men on foot, besides for the children, besides for the women. And also there's a mixed multitude. There's Egyptians that are coming with them with tons of flock and cattle, very much livestock. Rashi tells us that this trip is from Ramses to Sukkoth, that's a trip of 120 mil. A mill is roughly the distance of a mile. And they're able to travel the distance. This is, again, think of the immense logistics of transporting a nation of millions of people, the 600,000 adult males, much less women, children, old people. This is all happening in less than 18 minutes. Because remember, the dough is rising. And they're taking the dough with them. And they're going to bake it. In Sukkos, so the duration of this 120 mil journey, it has not yet leavened. And this is obviously all miraculous. And we read later on in chapter 19 that the Almighty himself describes the Exodus as he took us out on the wings 
of eagles, this whole exodus is tremendously miraculous. And it's not only Jews, there are Egyptians as well, the mixed multitude. The Arizal, the great Kabbalist, said that the reason why there were these Egyptians that joined the Jewish people, it goes all the, back, all the way back to the times of Joseph. Joseph, he circumcised all the Egyptians, and there was a pocket of Egyptians that were so moved by Joseph's lessons that they designated themselves to be the ones who are cognizant and accepting of the principles of monotheism, and therefore when the Jewish people are leaving, they too joined the Exodus. So they have with them the dough, and their verse 20, 39, they baked the dough that they took out of Egypt into unleavened cakes into matzah, and it didn't have enough time to be leavened, and they're driven out so fast that they have no other provisions with the exception of a few matzos. And our sages tell us here that this is tremendous act of faith and trust of the Jewish people that they're leaving really with no food. Yes, they have a little bit of dough that they bake into matzah, but they're just waltzing into the desert. You know, imagine you going with your family and all you have is really the fact that you're trusting in God and you have a little bit of dough that you're going to bake into matzah, but this is a tremendous act of faith that they're walking into the desert a land that is not planted, and they're trusting God. And and chapter 12 ends by a, a slight alteration in the chronology. Verse 43, we go back to what happened before the Exodus, and we complete that story by giving us more of the details of the laws of the Pesach offering. You look at Rashi and the Ramban, they explain why the chronology was altered, because it wanted it to kind of finish with one story the story of the Jewish people getting ready to go and going, and then it goes back to finish up the details, to wrap up the whole story and give us the rest of the laws regarding who is allowed to eat it and who is not allowed to eat it and the various laws of how you're supposed to eat it. And verse 51 ends the chapter. It happened on that very day, Hashem, the Almighty, to the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. The final 16 verses of the Parsha in chapter 13 are quite noteworthy because these two paragraphs are contained in the tefillin, the phylacteries that Jews wear every weekday. In fact, if you look at a tefillin set, the one that goes on the arm is one box containing one compartment. If you open that compartment, you'll see a scroll. In that scroll, you'll see four paragraphs from the Torah, two of them from chapter 13. And in the tefillin that we wear on the head, it's broken down into four compartments. Each one of those compartments contains one scroll, and in each one of those scrolls is one of these paragraphs. And two of those sections, two of those compartments contain paragraphs from chapter 13. And the reason for that is because in these two paragraphs, it mentions the tefillin mitzvah. And this is interesting. As we're finishing the Exodus, and we're kind of zooming out, so to speak, from the story of the Jewish people, and we're getting some mitzvos, some commandments that are relevant to them. So the first mitzvah is the sanctification of the firstborn. There was a tremendous event that happened, the death of the firstborn, and that creates a certain holiness in the firstborn because now the firstborn of the Jews, both them, the humans, and their animals, they survived. They were spared. Their Egyptian counterparts all died. So in effect, the fact that the Jewish firstborns are alive, that's all by the grace of the Almighty. So therefore, in effect, the firstborns, of human, both human and animal, of the Jewish people belong to God and they need to be redeemed. And that's the first mitzvah. And Moses reiterates the fact that we eat matzah and don't eat chametz, don't eat leavened bread on Pesach. And then in verse 8, we read a very important verse, not that we are the ones that decide what is an important verse, but a very significant verse because uh, of the message, which is very important. And you shall tell your son on this day, saying, it is because of this, meaning because of the matzah and the marar, that Hashem acted on my behalf when I left Egypt. Rashi tells us something very surprising. What does it mean when I tell my son it is because of this 
that the Almighty took us out of Egypt, it means that the reason why the Almighty took us out of Egypt was in order to facilitate the mitzvot of eating of eating the Pesach offering, of eating matzah, of eating the maror. We have it all backwards. We assume that the Exodus was to free the Jews from the was to free the Jews from the bondage. We assume that the reason why the Almighty did the Exodus was to free the Jews from the bondage of slavery. And once we're freed, well, let's remember it with some mitzvos. Here we're told it's the opposite. The objective of the Exodus was to facilitate the mitzvos. We're also told about the mitzvah of tefillin, wearing the tefillin, and various additional laws to firstborn animals. And the parsha ends, and it shall be a sign upon your arm and an ornament in your eyes, for with a strong hand Hashem removed us from Egypt. I would be remiss if I don't mention the famous Ramban in his commentary here at the end of this Parsha, Parsha's bow. In fact, my grandfather, blessed memory, used to tell his students that every Jew has to learn this, this comment from the Ramban by heart. But the gist of it is he talks about the significance of the Exodus and the eternal lessons in the Almighty's dominion, in prophecy, in what the objective of mitzvos are, all that that is derived from the Exodus. Next week, we're going to pick up the Jewish people. They're leaving, and Pharaoh is going to find out about it. He's going to find that they're not coming back home, and he will pursue them.